0: What's happening, everybody? And welcome to another festive episode of Topia. I'm your host, Bobby Spellman, and we got a fun show for you today. Hope that everybody is doing well out there. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving, and I hope you're having a wonderful time getting into the Christmas holiday Hanukkah season, whatever you happen to celebrate out there. The days are getting shorter and the weather's getting colder and it's getting a little cozier inside, but having a grand old time, smelling the smells and tasting the tastes of the holiday season, I hope you are as well. All right, we're going to jump right into it today. We have a very festive holiday kind of an uh, episode today. My guest this week is award-winning trombonist and composer Sam Blakesley. As a trombonist, Sam performs regularly at many of New York City's iconic jazz venues, performing with the Terraza Big Band, the Dan Pugach Nanette, Remy LaBeouf's Assembly of Shadows, Manuel Valera's New Cuban Express Big Band, the New Alchemy Jazz Orchestra, and the New York Afro-Bop Alliance Big Band. He's also performed with Joe Lovano, Sean Jones, Dick Oates, Ingrid Jensen, and Aretha Franklin, among many others. In addition to being an in demand trombonist, Sam leads a number of his own groups, including the Sam Blakesley Quintet, the Sam Blakesley Large Ensemble, and Wistful Thinking. In July, Wistful Thinking released their latest full length album, The Long Middle, on Outside In Music, and this month they've just released a new single. Low, how a rose air blooming, also on Outside In. Now, I butchered that title in the interview, all right? But if you want to find it, be sure to check that tune out, all right? Low, how a rose air blooming. You can find it on Spotify and all the platforms. It is a beautiful old Christmas standard, originally written in around 1599. That Sam has beautifully arranged for his ensemble, Wistful Thinking, which is a quartet featuring trombone, saxophone, guitar, and bass. No drums. And uh, it's perfect. It's coming out just in time for the season. It's a Christmas classic, but you're going to get that real heady jazz experience, that Sam Blakeslee touch in there. And I, I you should definitely check it out. It's, a, it's not only a holiday classic, But also an amazing jazz arrangement for an amazing ensemble So be sure to check out that new single Uh, Sam and I discussed the new single His band Wistful Thinking and their origins Making music in a pandemic And Sam's approach to writing for different ensembles Sam and I had a ton of fun and I know you will too So without further ado, here he is, Sam Blakeslee Well, Sam, welcome to the dungeon. Thanks for coming over to talk about music. Um, you got a new single out. Low, how the how? Wait, what is it? You say it. Low, how a rose air blooming. Mm, <laughs> low, how a rose air blooming. And a lot of people will put out music that is uh, standards, and often those you know standards from the the Great American Songbook or jazz standards of various kinds. This is a standard from 1599, isn't it? <laughs> a little it? bit older, yeah. Yeah, a little bit older. What was the what was the origin of this? Uh, this particular piece that you're doing. Just in time uh, for the Christmas season.
1: Yeah, it's just you know happened to be like that. Um, <laughs> no, I just always uh, like this the melody of the song growing up. Um, you know I'm not necessarily practicing Christian or anything, but um, I just I thought this melody was really pastoral and uh, a good kind of encapsulation of like this kind of moody aesthetic that I wanted to use with the band Whistle Thinking. Um, it's like a cordless chamber group. Um, Lots of like delay and effects pedals, kind of a rich texture. I thought that the Christmas carol might be a fun way
0: to kind of mess with it a little bit. (laughs) Sure, no (laughs) doubt. Yeah. What was the process of arranging it?
1: Uh, Well, I just wrote it like at the time I was kind of um, working on a lot of like four-part chorale writing, like SATB, just trying to, um, I was listening to a lot of music of Bach and things like that uh, in the shutdown. And this was just a kind of a byproduct of, you know, let me just take this one melody. And I didn't necessarily learn the song, like the actual progression of it or anything, but just wrote four individual lines that then generated like the chords of the piece. So interesting. um, So that was it was just kind of like a fun compositional exercise that actually turned into a thing of like, oh, I could actually play this and it might work and. With the four voices of the band, it might be cool. So mm, sure.
0: So you have the me- the main melody, which you'd heard growing up, and mm-hmm. was a, had been in your sort of conscious yeah. b- before that. And then, um, and then you. But it's almost like you're treating it. the The counterpoint is not here's the vertical structures. It's just here's what I want to deal with in terms of each individual voice. Yeah, and that's a really interesting way to do it. I feel like in in a lot of circumstances, because we learn how to play lead sheets, it's easy to think vertically about harmony. You know about yeah. harmony. And in writing arrangements, oftentimes you go, okay, well, here's the chord structure, here's the standard chord progression or whatever. But really, all harmony is just a bunch of counterpoint. It's just all melodies moving through, you know, in time. But for you to say, like, okay, I'm not going to worry about what the specifics of those harmonies are. Let me just deal with what I'm hearing in terms of the horizontal nature or whatever of the melody. That's kind of an interesting approach.
1: And it was cool, because there was times where I'm sure that, like, there were certain parts that were more or less inevitable, like a five chord or things that, you know, I just kind of felt like it was going to go there, but then because there was this, this gap of where it could go in between, um, I felt like it, it could go to some more interesting places, of you know, like kind of Kenny Wheeler, minor second things, and, mm-hmm. and not being as concerned with what the vertical representation of it is, but, you know, if all the movement of the lines are making sense, then it's kind of like, you know, you can do whatever you want. Sure, <laughs> yeah.
0: Did you then go back and check out some other people's recordings of that tune and like compare what you I chose actually, to do harmonically I, versus I haven't the
1: others. I haven't um I maybe checked out one like you know Mormon Tabernacle Choir thing mm-hmm. but I was like you know maybe I don't need to listen to a ton of that it will be fine sure <laughs> so. that's its own vibe <laughs> yeah it's a vibe yeah, interesting
0: but and then as you went into writing this the, the arrangement but your intent was like let me just take this melody and not be influenced by these other things
1: yeah yeah and there's like some different things with the harmonic rhythm it goes to like 3/4 and there's lots of um like, I liked the, there was lots of room to extend or contract phrases in the melody because, like, the melody in itself kind of lays over the bar lines weird. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things that I dug about it, is because it just kind of creates this constant suspension that doesn't necessarily resolve, like, in the harmonic rhythm where you would expect it mm-hmm. to resolve. So I kind of tried to use that. And so there's lots of bars of, uh, you know, sustained bars of 7-4, then it goes to 5-4, and then to 4-4, four four, and... Um, just different ways to kind of create some
0: uh, places of space in the melody sure um, yeah it's interesting too that that approach because it, it, listening to it, it you're not struck it, it it doesn't seem like a mathematical formula right, right. it's not like you know a modern jazz you know tirade and various <laughs> time signatures but when that when that those melodies I, I think this may be true in particular of like folk music and in church music and things of that nature where maybe the text is a big part of the way that the the melody comes about like oftentimes i feel like if that you have that dominant melody then whatever's happening with the time signatures becomes sort of incidental it's just like Mm -hmm. a side note it doesn't sound like the main feature of the thing or whatever yeah
1: and what one thing i kind of tried to do i kind of just remember this now is that um i was trying to kind of mirror how like a congregation might sing it where it's not, like, really metronomic. There's, mm-hmm. like, these huge pauses that the organist would be like, okay, everybody, we're here now, you know? So there's this kind of a different sort of ebb and flow to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, while we were all playing it in time, I kind of wanted it to feel, like, amorphous like sure. that in that sense. But
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a little Ivesian in a sense, <laughs> that idea of capturing the nature of what it would be like in, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of circumstance or whatever. <laughs> Interesting. So now let's go back a little bit. This is with your band, Wistful Thinking. Yeah. Which is, the instrumentation is, I'm going to let you take it away, the instrumentation and the, and the personnel so we get everything straight.
1: So it's um, a band that consists of three friends of mine from Ohio, and we had done a lot of playing throughout the years, but we hadn't really documented like a full-length uh, uh, album as that ensemble together. Um, and it's Chris Coles on alto saxophone, and he also has an extensive pedal board, so mm-hmm. there's lots of options for non-saxophone things that he can get into, or they sound like non-saxophone things. Sure. Better. And then there's uh, Brandon Coleman on guitar and uh, Matt Wiles on acoustic bass. And it's drummerless ensemble. Um, and I kind of wanted to, in, in this one in particular, I kind of wanted to pin this like, electro-acoustic vibe against each other. So mm-hmm. two of the instruments are strictly acoustic, the trombone and acoustic bass. And then electric guitar and saxophone are like not acoustic at all. So sure. um, there's moments where it's like we're kind of like your typical kind of jazz quartet things. But then also like we kind of got into a lot more ambient stuff than I was necessarily expecting to just with all the toys that Brandon and Chris had, it just kind of went there. Sure. Um, so yeah, we, it's just, it's kind of coming out of uh, you know, the sentiment of kind of being in between two places or feeling like connections for me back home, but being in New York and, mm. and um, you know, I kind of, this is, I guess this album is kind of like the reconciliation of that, There's things that I like about both scenes that I can't really do without, but then it's it's tough to Mm -hmm. you can't really compare them or contrast. You can just contrast them. So right, it was just this feeling of of um, you know in New York. Something that I noticed in the first few years is myself just like overplaying all the time, like okay, like overplaying in every Mm -hmm. sense of the word. And I was trying to figure out where that was coming from. And I think that there's this this subconscious. thing that goes on when we're trying to be heard in new york that okay we need to do something that makes us stand out from the next musician you know sure and i think it it creates a very pyrotechnic scene oftentimes you Mm -hmm. know sure and this was kind of like um you know we've been in the bmi thing we've written we both write for large ensembles and Mm -hmm. i was we were both involved in that and you know i kind of wanted like an antithesis of that type of organization so it's like Here's something that's highly organized and very specific, and then here's the something that any tune can go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but all with the the notion of like trying to think as an ensemble first rather than individual soloists or anything like that. Sure,
0: you know? yeah. And the record is The Long Middle, Sam Blake's lead, Wistful Thinking, for those watching this, <laughs> watching it on YouTube. And this came out when? This came out on Outside Dead Music, first of all. Outside this of is Music? This is an amazing record. This is a great record. Thank man. you. Um, On uh, July thirtieth, twenty twenty-one. Yeah, okay. So, so still fresh. Still fresh. Still fresh. Yep. And one of the things that I that really does strike me about this, and I think it took me a couple listens really, in the, it's not jarring, but it is really interesting the way that you have the acoustic instruments and you get into that mindset of it being like, you know, in the in sort of the greater tradition of like the Jimmy Jufrey band mm. or something of that nature, where it's like, okay, this is an acoustic jazz group, and then all of a sudden, I feel like you you pull the listener into this other sort of ambient sounds world. Mm. At first when I was listening to it, I was like, oh, it's got to be the guitar is is it somehow uh-huh. incorporating these different um, textures, electronic mm-hmm. textures or whatever. But it's really interesting that it's, it's the saxophone. It's yeah. bringing in the pedals and the different effects and things of that nature.
1: Yeah, and it, it's kind of funny you said that because, you know, um, like some of the reviews were kind of like, Oh, I wish I heard the saxophonist more. Yeah. Like, you were hearing him on every <laughs> that, track on yeah. the whole album, you know.
0: That's amazing. But man. it's
1: just a different role. And, I th- and that's one of the things that, I, you know, without the drums, that I kind of wanted to push the ensemble, because I think with drums it, like, immediately kind of defines more of what you're necessarily going to do. Mm, um, okay. But with, you know, we kind of all had to assume, like, a greater ensemble role and, like, responsibility than just kind of, like, as, as the horn players we can kind of just Come in and out of the rhythm section when it's our time to play. There was I felt like there was a need to be much more involved, so it was like a fun challenge, fun space to be in. And, sure,
0: yeah. Know. Was Was there a particular were, What were your inspirations in starting the band? Did you have music that you were listening to? You were like, oh, this would be interesting to create something that is a drummerless ensemble. It's always funny to say that kind of stuff because an ensemble can be anything. Right, right. It's yeah. conve- it would be conventional to have you know drums as part right. of the rhythm section or whatever. But
1: well, you know, you mentioned the Jimmy Dufrey band, and I, I love. Um, excuse me, like the small bands that uh, Bob Brookmeyer was involved in. So Jimmy Giuffre, but then also he had several duo albums um, with Mads Vending on bass, and there's a duo album with uh, Ted Rosenthal on piano. Mm-hmm. And oh, Jim, you're talking Jim about Hall Bob, Bob and Brookmeyer? Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah, Bob Brookmeyer. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jim Hall on guitar, and mm-hmm. like those, those, I loved, uh, my teacher in undergrad got me hip to those records, and like I just loved there's just this kind of, like, innate freedom when you're just improvising with one other person. Mm -hmm. Sure. Because then it's just you and the other person strictly listening to each other, whereas, like, you're maybe trying to balance all that communication when you have drums, piano, bass, and, you know, there might be moments when the drums and bass are hooking up on something, but then there's something else going on over here, you know. Sure. And uh, it just kind of all forced us to listen with, like, different ears. I think Mm -hmm. it was fun. Yeah.
0: What was the? How did you get it together in the first place?
1: Well, we. Um, it's kind of funny because, like, I liked that sound of the drummerless ensemble, so it's kind of always in my mind. And I liked um, how as a trombonist, I could just kind of play it like a very comfortable volume, mm, and not have to yeah. try to to cut Helps over over yeah. amps and stuff <laughs> like that. So, so there was like some pragmatic things, and it was actually like me and Brandon and Matt were getting dinner one night, and I think we had just done a tour with um, the Dam on it. or me and Brandon had. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were just discussing like how insane touring with a quintet is versus, you know, touring with a nonette and it's like, Oh my god, you know, this is so difficult. It's like, you know, it'd be really easy if like this the three of us, like trombone, guitar, bass, just like got in a car and did hits and we wouldn't you know, we could take everything in one car and it'd be easy Airbnbs, you know, it was, like sure. came from a really pragmatic point and then I didn't really think about it for a few months and then it was like, Oh man, actually like some of these tunes would work really well for that kind of vibe so and then just went from there Mm, cool
0: and you've written for a bunch of different ensembles you've been writing big band music both for your own group and also doing the BMI Composers Workshop Mm -hmm. and then you've got your own quintet and everything so you have Mm -hmm. these different uh, ensembles which certainly I think it's I think it's a benefit because it gives you the opportunity to try out different things or to be in different environments the way one is going to play over a big band is going to be very different than the way you can play in a smaller setting you know especially with no drums or whatever that kind of a um, that kind of a context how do you think about writing for each of the groups differently mm. are there tunes because I know like Bob which is a great tune uh-huh. that's on this but you've also written a big band arrangement of that yeah, as well like, yeah. do the tunes come first or do you think about them specifically for ensembles that you're working for
1: oh man um, well I think that like what drives maybe the difference of my big band writing versus like the wistful think- thinking writing is that with wistful thinking I'm like purposefully trying to lean into like potential risks that could Mm. develop like sure you know making things be open-ended and there's a lot of like free playing and things but then even on you know more kind of lead sheet things like making sure there's not too much on the page to be too composerly with it you know Mm. that was something that i found like with all the big band writing when it came time to do small group stuff i found myself like oh here's an intro and then we'll have an interlude and then every tune needing this like hyper organization Um, but like with the big band stuff, you know, I'm essentially trying to create, I don't want this to seem like I don't want there to be an edge on the music, but, um, essentially trying to create like as little risk as possible. So like every, just, and the pragmatic reason behind that is because there's barely ever time to rehearse and people usually don't like doing it. So it's (laughs) it's trying to make it be as easily performed as possible. So it's kind of like different. Qualities and it's it's actually been really difficult to kind of go between the two, you know, effectively. I think mm-hmm. I feel like,
0: because you have to think about it a different way. Yeah,
1: yeah. It is, and there's times where I'll bring in like, you know, on the we we did a little tour in August and that was like my first time playing with the band, um, really live because we were supposed to do a tour and recording in March 2020 and then yeah it didn't happen. That's, you know, so yeah. I found myself kind of trying to maybe control the reins a little bit more when it's like, oh, the, the beauty that we had in the album was that every tune was just like, whatever. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> sure. In a, in a, you know, fulfilling way. So. Right, right, right. <laughs> did you record it like that? I mean, did you think about it as being sort of uh, spontaneous, like very improvisational?
1: Well, we it's kind of weird how we recorded it because, you know, we were supposed to have a tour and recording, like, you know, your kind of stereotypical way to go about it. Um, and then we ended up you know, having to push it back because uh, of the pandemic and everything we ended up recording in august but uh brandon and matt um they run a really nice studio in cincinnati called the golden mean mm-hmm. um and so essentially since we didn't have a tour and gigs to get the music together we kind of just like rehearsed and recorded over like four or five days mm-hmm. um so kind of in the cracks of folks schedules we'd like rehearse a tune and then maybe get a couple takes of it and take a break and then later that day do another tune and so it was kind of like not your typical way to document it but it was kind of fun because we had time to just think about like what each tune really needed and there was more time to do it maybe than we'd have in other studio situations um but then it was also like cool to just think of music purely in the studio and not Mm. um relying on past information from like live shows it's like oh this really cool thing happened on this one gig
0: so now let's like do that yeah try to insert that you know yeah sure so
1: it was kind of completely fresh in a in a good way Mm -hmm. Um,
0: it feels as though nowadays it's much harder to do that because the musicians of course are largely at least in jazz world are largely paying for the recording time and everything like that like you just have to get in and do the job so a lot of the time it's like do a tour get the music tight Record it, but I mean a lot. Probably a lot of our favorite records from the '60s were okay. Everybody brings some charts in. We're going to go <laughs> into the studio, right. two takes, and that's what you get. Yeah. You know, you hear the that. Not always. I mean, I've heard that. You know, I mean, everybody would probably had a different approach, but like Horace Silver's band would play the same songs over and mm-hmm. over and over and really get them tight, and then go into the studio. But I'm, mean, you know, you hear those recordings of the Miles Davis Quintet in the '60s. Where they, you know, what could be a rehearsal becomes a take or whatever. All these right, different things. Yeah. So it is really interesting to have that opportunity to try um, a different way of capturing the music that, by its nature, encourages that kind of spontaneity. Mm-hmm. Because you can't you can't rely on something that you don't you haven't worked on and you know yeah many many times. What is the meaning of the long middle?
1: <laughs> it was kind of just like um, it's you know an homage to the weird passage of time that we kind of found ourselves in where in the shutdown where things were like moving quickly but slowly and you know seeming like there was endings but then not and you know (laughs) so just this kind of like amorphous time you know because it was it was just so so much energy I mean the we were supposed to leave like March 12th or something like that so Mm -hmm. um it was like right that you know and it was my first time in New York stepping out as a leader and like had a good tour and everything like that. So there was all this like pent up energy and then into like nothing, nothing, you yeah. know. Um, so it just kind of, it was already this kind of like, you know, slightly melancholic, wistful album. And then that kind of contributed. Yeah. <laughs> more, so it even more <laughs> wistful. But, but that was the, the long middle was the only one that wasn't written before we were supposed to go tour. So. Okay. Um, I just thought it was a good,
0: you know, good title track for it. For, for me, sure. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you wrote that one during the, Yeah, that was like in July. Yeah, it's a great way to start off the record. And that tune in particular, I feel like, really captures that um, combination of the acoustic sound of the band with Mm. the sort of more ambient electric sounds. Yeah. One thing I think about a lot is, and this is coming from, I'm in a situation where, like, I love, my my favorite records are, you know, acoustic jazz records. I love all kinds of different Mm. music, but, like, a lot of my favorite records are just the straight ahead. Yeah. You know, this is the instrumentation or whatever. This is what we're dealing with. But it's interesting. I feel like jazz in particular, we have shied away from accepting modern technologies like pedals that yeah. have been around since, you know, this, forever yeah, yeah. or whatever. But, like, it's easy to get caught up in that thing that's like, oh, it's not jazz unless it's like a quintet with saxophone and trumpet and a rhythm section or right. whatever happens yeah. to be. You know what I mean? Um, and I I appreciate your embrace of that as a different <laughs> sonic category because you'd be surprised like radiohead does not sound like chuck berry right you know what i'm saying they're in the same greater spectrum of rock music or whatever but like it's come a long way since then so it's a really interesting thing i think that you've been able to capture that that acoustic sound and the improvisation and everything but also without shying away from that kind of electronic approach Mm. do you ever worry about like the categorization of any of this stuff or is it just like these are the sounds that i'm hearing and i want to do something cool with it (laughs)
1: both (laughs) i mean because you know it's kind of it's this album in particular it was like there was some jazz things that i wanted to do on it but a lot of it was also like me accepting that i played a ton of folk and like blues guitar growing up and stuff so that was kind of like um i kind of wanted to lean into that part of my musicianship that you know while i was studying all like the really acoustic kind of traditional jazz things in college and afterwards and just kind of realized I didn't really accept that part of my like musical identity. So, sure. um, so yeah, I was, you know, doing some things like that. Um,
0: but, but you play yeah, guitar as well.
1: Not really. Anymore. <laughs> when it was you started off doing it. Yeah, it was, but it's, um, I don't know. I just, it's, it's been fun to kind of just loosely be like, these are the sounds that I want to hear. Um, but it has been kind of challenging trying to figure out like working with the label of like where to, put it and I think it's I think it's getting um easier like you know with the single it got (laughs) it got put on uh psychedelic jazz 420 jazz yoga (laughs) jazz and uh gospel jazz sure you know so it's kind of funny because it's like finding some homes and in places that I wouldn't necessarily expect but that's kind of what I want to do anyways you know I feel like it's really um the the jazz industry is like kind of like it can be throttled sometimes Mm it's like getting this one thing through and if it's not that then it's difficult so i kind of am trying to find ways to do that but then maybe circumvent it in some other ways and get other folks listening that that would enjoy the kind of folky you know thing more than uh, folky ambient kind of thing more than maybe just jazz aficionados you sure know, so
0: yeah, yeah yeah and that I, that's the order to shady grove on this as well right?
1: yeah and that's an arrangement of brandon uh the guitarist mm-hmm. and and you know brandon is like a total stylistic freak where, you know, he's of course well versed in jazz and everything like that. But then he's like, you know, has all this Frank Zappa music memorized and like all this, you know, fusion stuff in his, in his repertoire. But then he grew up in Eastern Kentucky. So like he has this whole like Western swing, like Appalachian Mm. thing together, bluegrass. Sure. So it's like kind of fun because, you know, I think at their hearts, Matt and Brandon are both like total prog fusion heads. So it's like you know you they're bringing that kind of vocabulary into like Kenny Wheeler tunes. Sure, <laughs> it's kind of a fun yeah mashup.
0: <laughs> right, right, right. But in my mind, in my mind, that's always where that's always where the best stuff comes from. Mm. You think about I mean even if you think about like Ornette Coleman's band, like you know Charlie Hayden was coming from the Ozarks playing like you know whatever that folk music and things right. of that nature and like. You don't think of Ornette Coleman as being folk music, but even he had that Texas blues thing going on. Totally. That is that roots, you know, whatever. And then they're incorporating, you know, some combination of, like, what they heard as being Latin music, Mm -hmm. you know, or, you know, any number of things. Or, like, certainly, when you think about, like, hard bop in the 60s and, like, what Horace Silver was incorporating into that music. At the time, I'm sure a lot of people were like, this isn't jazz. What's going on here? But, like, that's always, in my mind, been the best music is where you can incorporate all these different sounds. Mm -hmm. you know, what have you. But it yeah. does feel a little bit like sometimes we put unnecessary limitations on ourselves. Or like, oh, this yeah. is the history, therefore, you can't incorporate bluegrass into this. Or, right, you, right, You know. But, you, you know, it's worth finding those ways to, <laughs> that middle ground, you know what yeah. I mean, where everything meets. It's also interesting, the sort of marketing part of it, because the industry is so weird now, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it was always, to some degree, you know, you hear about all these records, like, I don't, I think that probably record executives named a lot of albums just to mm. be like, you know, um, striking in a certain way. You know what <laughs> sure. I mean? Like the the shape of jazz to come. Like maybe, mm. maybe I don't know who wrote that album birth title. Birth of the Cool. Of the- yeah, 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 yeah. This kind of stuff is like seems like it's a little bit of a marketing thing. But it's interesting now. It seems as though um, you you just put out now uh, the long middle, and then before that. Uh, selective coverage mm-hmm. with your quintet yeah is that was that it? that's independent that was independently, that was independently released? released yeah 2017, okay. so yeah. but you're in the middle of all like what is happening now in some respect in the music industry at least with like jazz records and mm-hmm. th- things like that and we find ourselves in a very different time than we did when we were growing up where there were actually record labels that may yeah. pay for an album to be put out or whatever now you have record labels that that um, I, I mean, I know Outside In is doing amazing work, putting out yeah. an amazing catalog of records and yeah. they've been putting out stuff all the time and getting that to the people. But it's, it's kind of, I wonder what your experience has been like, cause now it's no longer about like, oh, we're going to sell, you know, a hundred thousand copies of this LP or whatever. It's like yeah. what, um, what playlists on Spotify or whatever you can get into or whatever, like what's yeah. been your experience putting these albums out?
1: Well, it's been a really good, like, learning experience. I mean, that's one of the things I like working about with with Outside In is that it's, you know, they provide a ton of services, but then they kind of, like, help you through it, too, and show you the ropes, whereas before this process, I had really no idea. I Mm -hmm. I thought I did, you know. Right. Or, like, the things that I thought mattered were, like, the things that did not matter. (laughs) Like, give (laughs) me an example. So, like, you know, I would rely a lot on, um, like, individual social media promotion or something, like, trying to get... The word out via that or uh you know and it it has a point but then you know i just kind of find that the algorithms are just suppressing your own promotion to such a degree that um you know like i i did a playlist campaign with the single and the and i did not do one with the the record i was just curious to see how it was going to go and um if it was going to get picked up by something you know mm-hmm. and um it's been like the single's been luckily playlisted a good amount in the first few days and it's kind of <clears throat> it's kind of shocking how different the play count is. <laughs> Interesting. You know, and yeah. um,
0: let me ask you this and we don't have to give away any any industry secrets here. No, no. Do, You're paying for promotion for the playlist thing?
1: Yeah. Yeah, and it's you know, I I view it as a necessary
0: evil to yeah, be sure, but totally I mean, honest. That's fine, you know, and I'm cool with that. I'm yeah. cool with that being evil. But the other thing is, we as artists don't like talking about the business side of it. Yeah. But the business side has always been there. Yeah. Like there have been people whose job it was to always to send these things to radio stations and to promote the albums and to get them into jazz, you know, magazines and publications yeah. of various kinds. It's just that it wasn't our job.
1: Exactly. But now
0: we have to see how the sausage is made we because are, yeah. there's no other way. It's not to say there's no other way to do it, but. practically, there's no other way to do it. I mean, we know a lot of people working in New York and everybody's doing the business part Mm -hmm. themselves to some degree.
1: Yeah. I mean, but that's one of the things that, you know, I've definitely struggled with. I mean, there's times where I'm, like, really interested in releasing things and interested in in growing the catalog. And other times that I'm like, man, this is a really tough investment because it's like we're not necessarily making it back. Mm -hmm. But I think that there's this really unique time of, like, you know, think of all the musicians that when there were record labels and things like that who were the most amazing people, but just didn't have that break. Right. You never heard of them. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, I don't really anticipate, you know, going on the pure path to the top of Jazz Mountain anytime soon. <laughs> but you know, it's like but but I, I like that I can have complete control mm-hmm. over what I wanna put out and when I wanna put it out. And it's it's kind of fun to start seeing like a little bit more tangible evidence of that with the releases and, and, um, you know, I had a friend, uh, Jorn Swart, a great pianist who's on the quintet record. I was talking to him the other day and we were just discussing like the value of these things, you know, he's someone that, um, has pushed his like solo piano project a lot and kind of similar thing, like found different avenues to promote it that aren't like jazz jazz. Mm -hmm. And it's been really successful, you know, and it's getting into more hands or more, uh, different people's hands. Um, but what he said was like, you know, it's creating your own catalog that is available for the rest of your life is like invaluable. Yeah. Because you never know at what point someone's going to listen to it after your 10th release and be like, oh, man, the first record in 2017 was killing. I didn't yeah. know how this was out. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or whatever, you know, hopefully. And that's kind of and they might want to use it for something or they might, you know, you never know. And that's just I'm just kind of trying to keep um, keep in mind that there are. Things that are necessary that are significantly help with promotion, but the main goal behind it is just that like I have music that I want to write mm-hmm. and I want to get it out. Sure, that I document with my friends. Right, you know, and like yeah, yeah. it's harder, easier said than done. But that's what I'm. That's what I'm trying to keep my
0: head at. <laughs> sure, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> you know? yeah. And then, as you're creating things, you want to document it so you can you know, how many, you don't want to write a million tunes that you like and then have them disappear into the ether because you've just moved on stylistically right. or because, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah I think there's a, there's a lot of value to that. And as a consumer of niche music, <laughs> I appreciate that people are doing that. Yeah. I don't know yeah. how many, like, it's funny, man. And I think this is true of, like, the improvised music world and jazz world or whatever. I'm sure it's true of many different styles of music that are, you know, I'm sure it's in some regards true maybe in, like, bluegrass world or old-time music or any number of various things. But like the idea that these people that I hold in such high regard, like my heroes, the mm-hmm. my living heroes, are oftentimes just like regular working people who you know what I mean? I see them at shows, I'm like, whoa, but you yeah. you made like one of my favorite records ever. Yep. And they're like, oh, thanks for listening to it because it's you <laughs> and like eighteen other people or right. whatever, you know what I mean? I'm not saying that, you know, it's not but you don't know what's what's gonna affect people because yeah. you don't have that access. You don't you can just you're the best you can do as an artist is to try to capture something Mm -hmm. but it may have a huge influence on somebody who's like you know who found the record by mistake someplace it's like wow this is like the music you know as long as I think you're operating with integrity which uh, you know you are obviously Mm, you know what I mean but I think (laughs) (laughs) but that's that's
1: (laughs) really the thing you know because unfortunately this this ease of access to these platforms creates lots of things that are not holding integri- integrity you know what i mean sure. so right that's like the thing that's tricky is that we're not only competing with things that are also very good but we're competing with things that are not very good right yeah. <laughs> you know and right. that's just like the the tricky part about it but i think that overall it's like it's just exciting because you know i mean i'm intrigued to see what like another 10 years of like this kind of freelancing model that's going on right now what that's going to yield. And, and as and as we kind of pick up skills along the way, you know, I think of before the shutdown, I had couldn't use the logic. I didn't own a microphone. I couldn't edit a video. I couldn't do all these skills. I was like farming out to other people and it was expensive and stressful. And, you know, and I'm just kind of intrigued to see what happens like as we all just like learn these skills just a little bit more. Sure. What sort of, uh, how that shapes the releases and how that shapes the frequency of releases and mm-hmm. how that, you know.
0: Yeah. And I think you're speaking to what I think is a, it's, it's a little bit tricky, but I think is ultimately a benefit, which is that we Mm -hmm. now have maximum control over what it is that we're doing. Yeah. I love the fact that if you have a, if you have a vision, you don't need to ask somebody's permission. Right. I mean, it's not hard. Obviously it's harder with a big band (laughs) (laughs) than it might be with something else, but you can buy, you can, you know, for relatively cheap, have an. A very good home recording setup, and you could make an album in your, you know, how many countless people's have, people have made albums in their basements and their bedrooms yeah. and stuff that really affected a lot of people and had a mm-hmm. huge impact. You know what I mean? Yeah. The problem is, of course, that back in the day, you'd have people whose job it was to record the albums, and other people whose job it was to put. Pro- you could right. you could offload all of that business side of it or the technical side of it, and just focus on the art itself. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, how many times do you hear about? people who are like I didn't want the album cover to be that or I didn't want it to be called that right. or I didn't want this this name or whatever but we did it because we were that was the record contract mm-hmm. and that we were doing and the other thing is back in the day the recording studios were I mean it was prohibitively expensive to have a huge you know uh, like a, a recording system and all the and all the microphones <laughs> yeah. and everything like that so like i wonder sometimes about how many just geniuses just never for whatever reason, weren't in the right place at the right time and right. didn't get recorded. Yeah. Whereas now you could be, you could be like, well, I'm going to do this crazy thing and everybody could say, that's a terrible idea. And it could take off, you know, right. Right. I mean, probably some way I probably have a bunch of favorite bands that are like that. You know <laughs> what I mean? So it's, in, it's interesting to be able to do that, but it does create that additional problem of like the amount of time spent in that business side of it versus mm-hmm. making music or whatever. Yeah.
1: And that's what I, I mean. I haven't figured it out. I don't think it's really going to get easier either. As yeah. we as we are expected to do more things at a quicker pace, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's cool because it's like you know I found with this with this band was thinking like because we were um, getting ready to record in March and then like nothing happened, and then you know virtual recordings became the you know the hip thing to do. Uh, we actually ended up with like a whole other remote album mm. and of like totally. Fusion, like electronics, synthesizer, you know, ambient kind of stuff. And it's just kind of wild because it's like, you know, without being forced in that situation of having to learn stuff, like I would have never done that. I would have never opened myself to that kind of, you know, electronic production or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But then, you know, what I kind of realized is after so long of trying to amass more like just freelancer skills... That it's also completely okay to just be like, yeah, I could learn all of this,
0: but I don't have to. Right, yeah. And you gotta pick <laughs> you know, and choose, man. You have to pick you and can't choose. Do you know,
1: and now that everyone's back to work and stuff like that, too, it's like, I'm just kind of seeing, it's like, yeah, I don't think I'm gonna have time to uh, edit this video. I might have sure. to farm that out.
0: <laughs> right, but that's that's just fine. It's like yeah, it's yeah. easy <laughs> to lose your mind doing too much stuff. Yeah. That. So that record, there's, so there's a second record that is yet to come out.
1: Yet to come out yeah cool. hopefully summer uh 2022 spring summer okay
0: so exciting working on it probably. yeah capturing a vibe from the from the heart of the pandemic yeah <laughs> yeah man it's interesting i know that um the last john hollandbeck's last the Claudia quintet um mm. record they did remote mm. and they were able to create that sound and it's an amazing no, album I actually without it. i didn't know they came out with it. yeah i gotta check it out um remote i hope that's not a secret i don't think so because he told me on this show so (laughs) you ruined it (laughs) (laughs) they're not gonna they're gonna know now yeah but i mean you know it's kind of amazing now what we can do and it changes the nature of the thing of course because back in the day it was like all right we stand in a room together we're gonna improvise and what have you and there's always value to that but yeah it gives you the opportunity to try out different things Mm -hmm. because whatever the create you know i think a lot about um i've I've mentioned this a couple of times but i think a lot about uh david burns book how music Mm -hmm. works did you ever check that out? i haven't no it, it, the sort of premise of or one of the premises of the book is that the environment in which you create music has a huge impact on what the music is. Yeah. And that seems obvious saying it, but when you think about like his example is like old church music, like Bach is not going to write Stravinsky. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Because he was playing it in cathedrals or whatever. Yeah. If you try to play the Rite of Spring in a cathedral, you're, everybody's going to lose their minds. You know <laughs> what I'm saying? Yeah. And people are going to stop coming to church or whatever. <laughs> but like, but Stravinsky could write that you know, that music because it was it was to be performed as a ballet in yeah. a concert hall that would allow for more dissonance, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Same thing with like CBGBs in the in the 80s or whatever. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like those all have... But it, it it makes me think of like, you know, okay, these are the cards we're dealt is we have to live in an environment, you know, it, at that time during the pandemic, we had to live in an environment where you couldn't play together in one room. Yeah. So let's figure out how to make music regardless, yeah. you know, or how many people like... um. Uh, you know, how many people would put together like big bands outside or something or like brass bands or things of that nature. Like, let's figure out a way to make it work. But it it, it also reminds me, that concept of the environment reminds me of what you're talking about, like the difference between playing in Ohio versus playing in New York and Mm. sort of that frenetic energy that comes from playing in New York. And it does seem like there's a certain, I mean, with this this music, there's a respite from that New York chaos where Mm -hmm. you can play, you know, nuanced and quietly and you can play melodies and stuff like that. But it's true. I mean, in New York, it's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about the idea of like, um, you know, you have you have to say something because there's so many people saying yeah. something. You got to get it out. But even you think about like bebop in the '40s, like that sound is like the sound of New York. It's like yeah. it's. I don't want to say frenetic in a negative way, but it's 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 got a certain energy to mm-hmm. it. Let's say that would come from the environment. Yeah. Uh, so you grew up in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Where are you from? I grew up in Columbus. Okay and then I in the city of Columbus in the city of Columbus like right near OSU campus so okay. it was a
1: fun, fun place to grow up sure
0: <laughs> cool um, yeah. and when did you start playing the trombone what brought you to the trombone uh,
1: well, I started playing in fourth grade um, that's when beginning band started up at my school and my mom had a, a trombone and a clarinet and she played clarinet in high school and then my grandpa had played trombone just as an amateur he was a, um, an eye doctor but mm-hmm. he just played around the house and stuff and um and then he given it to her. So when the time came for me, she said, "You can play clarinet or trombone because that's what we have. So sure. pick one." And I couldn't get a sound out of the clarinet, and I could get something out of the trombone, so I did that. But <laughs> okay, um, interesting. Yeah. So and then just I, I kind of came into like wanting to um, like really be like a professional musician or study music pretty late, like halfway through my senior year, basically. So hmm. um, or like maybe by the end of my end of fall semester my senior year i was like yeah this is what i want to do so um yeah kind of got a late start with that but um went to youngstown state in akron and then moved to new york so
0: cool <laughs> you did your undergrad there yeah and then you moved to new york after that i went to i did my graduate in ohio
1: too at, uh-huh. at akron okay and then lived there for a couple of years and taught and then sure. moved out so
0: okay well, did you have a strong music program in high school or what was it that brought you to decide to do music in college or like were you Um, playing around or what was the scene well i kind
1: of yeah thankfully i got into or i i joined the there was like a vocational career center um through columbus public where i could go just like kind of an all-city thing that you'd go there for the afternoons of every day and you would and they had like you know theory classes and and ensembles and stuff like that but it was like kind of a leaning towards like how to actually be a professional musician which is cool because there was more Things that I learned about actually being a professional musician in that than in coll- two degrees in college. <laughs> but that's not uncommon. That's a whole different yeah, subject. A, college often <laughs> will teach you the art, but will not
0: focus yeah. on the requirements of actually being a professional. Um,
1: so yeah, so I had opportunities to kind of like play and explore there, and then I also did Columbus Youth Jazz Orchestra my senior year um, with Todd Stoll, who at the time he was um, director of SIBO in Westerville South, I think. In Columbus, but then now he's the vice president of education at Lincoln Center. Oh, wow. Um, so so there was like lots of Ellington and Basie and stuff involved. Sure. And
0: Do you ever see him in New York?
1: I saw him for the first time in since the shutdown um, on Thursday at BMI reading. Oh, wow. So yeah, he was oh. playing in the band. So Oh, that's great, man. That's yeah. awesome. But, Full circle.
0: Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's a trip. So you were playing big band music then.
1: Yeah, that's kind of what got me in, you know, or like got me into it because up till that point I hadn't really like played the shit, like... You know, the first chart we did was Gerald Wilson's arrangement on Predito. Mm-hmm. And I just hadn't ever heard anything like that. Sure. You know, like, yeah, yeah, been yeah. like Glenn Miller, Dave Wolpe, tribute, you know, in high school band up to that point. I was like, oh my gosh, what is this sound? Sure. And it was kind
0: of all downhill from there, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so, hmm. Do you feel like... Does, do you feel like the trombone really resonates as your voice as a musician? Or do you feel like you played the trombone and you are musical and it is the it's what you are given
1: that's a good question Thank and you. it's uh, i've been thinking about it a lot actually cuz you know i always felt this huge i think just in like the physicality of the instrument and the coordination it takes like it's can be so obnoxious and then like trying to you know play bebop or like play straight ahead jazz it's just really difficult so sure. There's times where I don't feel like it's my voice, but um, more often than not, I've I found that like this, it's funny you say this because like this record, like the music on this record, kind of forced me to think in like a much more melodic approach, and it was I realized that the songs did not need that frenetic energy that I was playing, like basically until the shutdown.
0: (laughs) (laughs) you know Uh and then you
1: just get a chance to think about like man what am i actually trying to play like what am i really trying to to say when there's not you know five other trombonists i've heard that week that are kind of like you know seeping into what you know my (laughs) approach you know Uh um but there was one comment that someone said to me in august that he was like you know i just realized that your, the voice or the range of your voice and the range that you play on the trombone and the, the quality of each are like exactly the same and I never thought about that uh-huh. and I just real and then I started thinking about where I sing to and it's like uh, an a above middle C that's like the highest I can really sing uh-huh. and then I realized I was like yeah I don't really play high that often because I don't I don't get there you know what I sure. mean so I, I feel like I'm trying I, I need to Feel more connected than I. Or I'm more connected than I feel sometimes. Sure, you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, but on but it's this is always a good barometer whenever I come back to this music because it kind of forces me to like distill the message.
0: You know. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Does Rather, that make sense? Than, yeah. So. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Totally. Rather than feeling like you have to fit into something else, it's like, what is it that I'm trying to actually say? Yeah. About? Yeah. But it also is interesting because I think we spend so much time practicing, uh, you know, our respective instruments that you know the point is to get the instrument out of the way the point yeah. is to eliminate the challenges and obviously trombone has certain challenges that many other instruments don't have mm-hmm. but you do have of course that kind of vocal quality and the it's a it's a distinctive you know uh, it's a distinctive sound but yeah there are challenges involved but once you can get it out of the way like i think about like uh... like you listen to chet baker's mm-hmm. scat solos or yeah. or Louis armstrong or however many other people and then you listen to the trumpet solos and you're like if you just transcribed them and looked at them, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Right. And right. even like Chet Baker is an example. Like, I don't know if he intended to do that, mm-hmm. but his sound, the sound of his voice is very similar to the sound of his trumpet playing. Yeah. We try to capture that, what it is, the essence of our personalities. Mm-hmm. But you know what's interesting is I feel like in music and in jazz in particular, we're expected to have a, an individual sound. But if you're just hanging out with people talking, right. You're not thinking in your head, like, what make let let me try to take, let me try to say the thing that's gonna make, maybe we do in some respect. (laughs) Now that I'm saying this, maybe I gotta rethink this a little bit. But like, it's not the same thing where you're just yourself. You can't analyze your own character exactly. You kind of can, but not in the same way. You know, we're not really capable of that. But in music, we're expected to do that. Who were some of your, once you started to really get into it and you said, like, this is what I wanna do for a living, who were some of the people that at first were your influences on the instrument or even in whatever capacity and like, how did you assimilate some of that into your into your own playing?
1: Um, well, one of the first people I really liked checking out was um, Wycliffe, Wycliffe Gordon, actually, because mm-hmm. um, I kind of was, like, coming from, like, the blues. I listened to, like, a lot of Ray Charles and things like mm-hmm. that, like, right before I got into him, so then it was kind of, like, this good bridge between, like, Southern gospel and, like, R&B sure. into jazz also. mm mm-hmm. um, so, uh, yeah, Wycliffe Gordon first, and then kind of into JJ and Slide and Curtis, that like trinity of folks. And then um, Steve Davis, a ton of him. But I think the the person that's really shaped a lot of my writing and playing and how those two things really are intertwined is, is Brooke Meyer for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Because um, it's like I essentially try to, I've, I've been trying to improvise as much as I can how he would like construct. His pitches and, and intervals sure. and things—that's like kind of what I've been really trying to decode or, or get better at in the last yeah. couple of years. It's just like really trying to expound upon um, a singular idea for much longer.
0: Sure, <laughs> right? You know, and that really is the sort of Brookmeyer ethos. Yeah, it's like let's take this little bit of information and try to yeah. push it as far as we can, mm-hmm. which is kind of amazing. Do you think about? improvising is as distinct from composing or do they blend into each other i think
1: they're blending more you know they were they really felt different for a long time and i kind of was like always frustrated with waiting for one to really affect the other you know but i think there's so much um that we that we can't quantify Mm -hmm. of how it affects the two like you know on a gig recently i I felt like I was kind of leaning more towards some non-melodic, uh, you know, statements sure. <laughs> over time, and I, I felt like I was kind of scattered and, and reaching for different things, or you know, and uh, someone after the gig was like, "Oh man, that solo was so melodic." It's like, "Oh, weird, I didn't really think so," <laughs> yeah. you know. So it's like, even if we <laughs> don't feel like we're getting that ideal out, I think that the writing affects us way more than we realize. Sure, and I think like what i the, the big difference that i see too is just like big picture you know like if i'm writing a lot I, th- I think i have a a greater sense of like what's needed at that moment i'm not necessarily just gonna like go up and do the same thing that i would do if i was the second or third soul you know what i mean like
0: yeah sure
1: i, I feel like a little more in attuned to that mm-hmm.
0: you know what do you do now, both as a player and as a composer, because you're writing a lot, mm-hmm. um, to advance your creative, um, let's say, capacities? Mm. Like, are there things that you'd practice, or is there ways of writing where you say, I'm pushing myself further as an artist? Hmm.
1: Well, I think... Uh, hmm, that's a good question. I think that one thing I've been trying to do is just be way more patient with things and um let things kind of appear over time and you know like i i noticed that with the last thing i brought into the bmi workshop last week or last thursday um there was there was like some orchestration things i wanted to change or like you know l- kind of minutia things that i might do or or copious things in the parts but generally like the form i was like oh Okay, cool. And I don't usually, like, come away from hearing a piece for the first time being content with, like, the big picture. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, I think that's... um, That expands my capacities, I feel like. Just continually trying to, like... And is something, like, Ferber has worked a lot with me on and, like, in some private lessons we've had of just, like... It's like, you know, think of being... What do you say? Think of being an arranger like a drummer. You know, how it's just, like... The drummer, even if the chart is like garbage, they're going to have a great idea of how to create the arc and what things are needed where. And he's like, don't think like a trombonist in the section, think like much, you know, from a bird's eye. Sure. And um, that's been really helping me, I mm. feel like. Um, just kind of like, it, it just happens, helps open more uh, doorways that I maybe wouldn't like be patient enough to walk through or to let appear, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but just overall, I'm just trying to do less. <laughs> like, sure. Like, in general. Yeah. Like, so that's kind you of... You mean it writing? Writing and playing and, and working just take, and just, just like... space. Just more space for less things. Like, so, like, being cool with... All right, if I'm working on a big band chart, then I'm going to work on a big band chart. And I'm not going to, like, also try to do like pitch manipulation or like score study or like this and that and, and trying yeah, to like fit everything boxes, into one thing you know, or whatever and and be cool with like and this was definitely something that um the perspective of that like weird passage of time over the shutdown kind of provided of just like being okay with like well i can take three months on this because the None hell else am i gonna, gonna do it. you know so <laughs> right yeah you know and obviously we don't want to do everything like that right you know and deadlines are very beneficial but but just being cool with like letting stuff develop. Mm-hmm. And and I feel like that's what my goal is, is to like have that uh, transfer over in like, you know, improvisation, improvisational settings where it's just like not in a rush to get to wherever it's getting to. Sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Man, I think that was kind of a le- I don't want to draw too many lessons from the pandemic because I'm. I'm getting a little tired of. <laughs> that. Yep. But I'll tell you the one. Everybody took different things from it, but the one thing that I think I definitely learned is that is, is just distilling what you're doing down to what is important. Yeah. How much of this is important? You know, and I think that not only applies to your day to day life, but also in music. Like, what yeah. is it that we're trying to do here? And that may be in some regard back to the Brookmeyer ethos of like, mm-hmm. let's take this idea and let's not just throw it away. You know, okay, here's an idea, here's another idea, here's another idea. No, let's take the one thing and, like, see what can become of this, Mm -hmm. you know? But it's interesting, too, I think, speaking to that, the Brookmeyer approach, um, it's an interesting thing. It's sort of an interesting challenge because we come in jazz world from this, like, standards approach of, like, AABA 32-bar forms and, like... Oh yeah, here's the tune, and then we're gonna arrange that for a big band or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've all heard the Bassie charts and all this other stuff. Although I will say that maybe early Duke Ellington has its own kind of form and its own approach. Mm. All that early music has its own um, its own approach, but a lot of the Brookmeyer stuff is like, all right, the form is what it's gonna be. You're gonna follow the music rather than having this predetermined thing. But that yeah. can be difficult if you're used to being in that that other world.
1: Yeah. Well, it got you know the reason why I like Brookmeyer stuff is because things are the form is generated from the melodic material. It's mm-hmm. not like, okay, we're going to have a form of this kind and then I'm going to write things over it, you know. And right. it's it's just fun to kind of try to, um, you know, find like the parent material or like the family tree of his pieces. Like, oh, this actually came from this one background and then it generated three minutes of music from this. I just like that a lot. Yeah.
0: So. Do you have some favorite Brookmeyer records you'd recommend to people who are going to check them out? Oh, man. Besides the small group stuff? So the small group stuff you mentioned, or the duos yeah. and things like that, but like big band records in particular?
1: Um, I love um, all his new art orchestra stuff. Mm-hmm. I love his stuff with Mel Lewis in the 80s, too, like Make Me Smile and Ding Dong Ding. Those records are so great. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love his his band um, uh, like new works and then um, Waltzing for Zoe or Waltzing with Zoe. Mm-hmm.
0: Amazing. Those are right. Sure. I love those. <laughs> right on. That's great. Do you have any? Um, are you working on? You're obviously working on writing big band material mm-hmm. now. The last thing that came out was, uh, hold on, don't tell me, um, uh, Another Day in Which to Excel. Yeah. And um, that you did remote. Yeah, we did That's remote. That's a beautiful piece. That Thank you. People can find that on. Spotify and Indeed. all the places that you can listen to music. Yeah. Um, as a single, mm-hmm. uh, what was the process like in that in making in writing that piece of music and everything? Um, recording well, that it was and what have you of what and and recording it as well um, putting it out.
1: Well, yeah, like that was. I was reading at that time. I was really studying um, that Brookmeyer book by Dave Ravello. Yeah. Uh, in conversation, which I it's highly great, recommend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really taking my time going through that and working with all the resources and things. Um, so like the, that piece was definitely the piece that I had the most, that I've had the most patience on, like in regards to, um, how much I worked with the pitch material beforehand. It was like a couple weeks before I even started getting like form stuff together, but it was just like really trying to think Mm, of intervals and, 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 um, Be cool with kind of like dealing with the minutia of that um, and seeing how all the different ways that the intervals could be manipulated and things before I started putting any like melodic sense to it. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was like a really fun exercise because that was, I mean, I ended up with lots of stuff that I maybe use like 25% of it, you know, so it was really kind of telling like, man, if I'm patient with this, it really can go a multitude of directions that we necessarily may be like orally wouldn't gravitate towards and that's what a lot of the book is about is like using the pen as the the generator mm-hmm. and not our intuition or things like that but just getting it down on paper and then seeing oh do I like this or you know yeah it, it leaves a little more things up to chance or I, I have the the habit of when I go to a piano it's like oh here's this one tune and then I like wait a few weeks and I go back and it's like Here's another tune. and it's almost like exactly the same stuff. because I'm not a good pianist, and I kind of play what sure, I can play. I know I have the same situation. <laughs> right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that was really fun to kind of see how that develops, and then it was a good, um, a good challenge, like getting it recorded too. Just you know, dealing with all the individual stems. But I had Brandon help mix it, mm-hmm. um, and he's got he mixed and mastered uh, the long metal too. Oh, and, cool. Okay. And he's got a really good ear for it. Yeah. But that was just fun to kind of like have. You know, I, I haven't done a studio big band recording of my own music, but it's like of doing others. You know, I know that there's a certain amount that you can edit, but a lot of it is going to be live. You know what I mean? Sure. And uh, it was kind of fun to have complete control and just create some things that were that's like strictly for studio. You know, yeah. it's like, oh, I need that low flute line that I know isn't really going to come out in acoustic setting, but I really want to hear that. So well, I'll just raise that up a little bit. And, Problems. It was cool to just kind of mess with that. And
0: sure. Did you write it with the understanding that you were going to record it remote?
1: Like um, did, were
0: there things that you chose to do because it would be it would be like, not it would be more well facilitated in that environment, or was it just eh, this is just what we're there doing? There
1: was some things, but I was trying my best to still make it like acoustically manageable. Yeah. Even if I knew there were some things like that wouldn't come out super well. Um, but then it's all, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping that at some point um, soon <laughs> we can get it recorded in the studio and things like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm kind of trying to mix the two, you know. Yeah. I, and that's tough, I think, with big band records these days because it's like you want there to be a band vibe, but then that limits so much of the edit situations you could do. Mm-hmm. And I think we saw an interesting kind of amalgamation of... Um, live records and and uh remote thing happened together like in studios where it's like the trombone section would just go in and the trumpets would go in and and i was really worried of how things were going to come out like that like we did remy LaBeouf's record like that and there was uh some Manuel valera recording that we did that i did like that over the van- pandemic and i was like there's no way this is going to turn out and it sounds killing it sounds great <laughs> you know sure. because it's like it gives you just that much freedom mm-hmm. and new york i think is uh a great place in which people can just crush pretty much whatever, regardless of like what the situation is. Yeah, you know what I mean. So
0: you do have to have a band that's going to really know how to do that, yeah. and a rhythm section that's going to be able to intuit what's happening, exactly and all this other stuff.
1: And but a lot of people, I think both did. Um, they would do rhythm section and soloists, so there was still like some band sound. You know what I sure, mean? Sure, the interaction. And, yeah.
0: Because I mean. that's the tricky thing. Is yeah. If you're recording remote, the danger is that you don't get that spontaneity mm-hmm. that you would get from playing in a room with other people. Yeah. And we don't want to lose that, because that's a lot of the time the essence of what the you know yeah. makes the music what it is.
1: And I'm intrigued to hear you know another day live. I'm going to hopefully do a reading or something next month or something. But I'm intrigued to hear it because um, I don't know. I just feel like those kind of decisions... I'm intrigued to see if those decisions were more prevalent than I realized, mm-hmm. you know, of like mm-hmm. knowing that this is going to be just for the studio. I'm going to see if, you know, I'm intrigued to see how it comes out. So.
0: <laughs> sure. Yep. Now, do you have a, do you have aspirations to do a big band record? I have huge aspirations do a big band record. Because um, you've got a bunch of charts. I mean, you have a big band. Yeah. And it might be a little dormant. A little dormant because but...
1: of the pandemic and you know before that, but um, but no, I'm 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 hoping in the spring to be doing some like crowdfunding for that. Mm-hmm. So okay. um, you know I kind of have to get the the next album with Wistful going and and get that you know in the hands of some folks and everything. But after that, um, I'm hoping to do some shows in the spring and and be leading up to some recording, hopefully before folks get too busy in the summer. But sure, we'll see. It's just it's quite a... A project, <laughs> yes, sure friends, is, man. So, I
0: admire anybody who, you know. I mean, just just having a net is enough people to keep <laughs> me busy, man. Doing the yeah. big band thing is really, a, it's it's an admirable challenge, I yeah. think, because I I love that music so much. But yeah, it's not easy to keep a band like that together, yeah, and to, and to record and all this other stuff. Yeah. Um. So, for the people who will eventually donate to your Kickstarter <laughs> campaign for the Sam Blakesley Big Band record, where can they find you?
1: Um. I'm on Facebook and Instagram um, at Sam underscore Blakesley on Instagram, um, SamBlakesleeMusic.com. Um, I'll be doing some, we'll be playing actually at Marion's mm-hmm. on uh, December 15th. Great. From 7 to 10. And then I'll probably come to your, your uh, holiday party after. <laughs> right on. <laughs> um, Maybe I'll go over there first. And, <laughs> that's great. I play um, awesome. Yeah. And then... Um, have uh, some shows in February, uh, through Ohio and Midwest and Pittsburgh and Cleveland. Mm. Um, and doing like a couple of clinic things out, out that way around that time. So cool. And you're back it's and forth fun.
0: a lot. You spend a lot of time both in New York and you go back to Ohio to play. Yeah. Frequently. It's kind of
1: nice. Cause, um, the, the alto saxophonist on the long middle, his name's Chris Coles.
0: And, um,
1: he runs a project called the nines live nine lives project. Mm-hmm. And it's like a interdisciplinary, um, suite of, of it's like an 11-piece band with uh, dance and animation oh wow and um and it's it's dedicated to the uh, victims of the charleston shooting mm-hmm. um, okay and it's really Im- amazing and impactful music and and he just released that a few weeks ago um so there was like some release shows and then he's got some some cool lecture series things that we'll be a part of and so it's kind of like a, a, a it's an interesting project because there's like the show but then there's lots of other stuff around the show that um has been a good excuse to go back for
0: so sure for is that is that an album that has come out as well or yeah is it just it's live it's show? um
1: on Bandcamp, and then he just has limited physical copies but sure. i think they're available through and, and it's the, the nine website. lives project so nine lives project check
0: that yeah. out cause that's that's pretty deep yeah yeah all right one more time the name of the new single right in time for <laughs> the christmas season i don't want to butcher it man
1: low how a rose air blooming yeah a blue... or low how a rose. Low Lo-ha. Sam Blakesley. A- <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Beautiful track, man. Thank you. Yeah, man. congratulations on the new music. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, right on. Well, thanks, man. Appreciate it. All right, gang. Well, that was a lot of fun, wasn't it? Big thanks to Sam Blakesley for coming down to the dungeon to hang out with me and talk music. Congratulations to Sam on the new single, "Lo, How a Rose Air Blooming, for his ensemble, Wistful Thinking. Be sure to keep an eye out for what Sam's coming up with next. He's going to be doing a Kickstarter someday to raise some money for his large ensemble record, which will inevitably be spectacular. So be sure to follow Sam Blakesley and uh, keep up to date with what's, what he's all up to these days. All right, well, this is going to be the last show for 2021. We're going to take a little break at the end of this month, and we're going to be coming back at you with some great new interviews in 2022. So if you like the show you want to keep up to date with what we're doing, you can follow us on all the various platforms. Give us a like on iTunes and Apple Podcasts and all that good stuff. Follow us on SoundCloud. we got a YouTube page. Follow us on YouTube for the full video Jazztopia experience. All right, gang. Well, I hope you have a wonderful holiday season and a very happy new year. And we will be coming back at you in twenty twenty two. 2022, gang. All right, have a wonderful time, and I will see you then. See ya.